You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Around the world, people who are physically active are happier and more satisfied with their lives. This is true whether their preferred activity is walking, running, swimming, dancing, biking, playing sports, lifting weights, or practicing yoga. Simply put, humans are born to move. This is from the introductory sheet to my guest, Dr. Kelly McGonigal's new book called The Joy of Movement. Dr. McGonigal is a health psychologist and Stanford University lecturer who combines her passion for fitness and her background in health psychology to investigate movement as a source for joy. Simply put, this book helps us to understand why our yoga practice inspires so much joy, even when it's very, very simple and not necessarily overtly tied to the greater philosophy of yoga. Dr. McGonigal is a longtime yoga practitioner and former teacher. And in today's conversation, she helps us to look at her understanding of the science behind the joy of movement from the perspective of a yoga teacher and yoga practitioner. As we gain a greater understanding of the science behind why movement feels so good, we can actually use that information to improve our classes and to bring more joy to our students. Right on the heels of last week's episode about inviting students to your classes, this episode will help you give them an experience that will make them return again and again. Kelly, welcome to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I would love to have you begin by just sharing a little bit about your personal experience with yoga and what drew you into this topic that of your most recent book, The Joy of Movement, what led you to write this book? I got started practicing yoga when I was a kid, um, discovering it on VHS tapes. By the time I was in college in the early and mid 90s, um, what was really flourishing then was sort of the, the exploration of styles of yoga inspired by Ashtanga Vinyasa. So I began studying with traditional Ashtanga Vinyasa teachers, as well as the whole 90s sort of new wave of power yoga, flow yoga, a lot that was coming out of Southern California. And by the time I got to graduate school um, in the late 90s, I was really interested in that, that form of yoga as a personal practice. And at the end of my first year, um, someone who was teaching yoga at Stanford was moving and retiring and that I'd been practicing with. And she actually encouraged me to take a teacher training and start teaching. And so that was sort of how I got my start. And the reason that I think that she encouraged me to teach is she recognized what I was experiencing on a daily basis, you know, dealing with the stress of graduate school and sort of the, the stress of living with anxiety, um, that in that yoga class, I felt like my best self. There was clearly something transformative and empowering that was happening. Um, and she saw that in me. And one of the reasons that I wanted to teach was I wanted to offer that experience to other graduate students who were also stressed out. So I started teaching as a graduate student to other graduate students um, and continued to explore that those styles of yoga that were really about 
um, breath and flow and challenging the body to experience your own strength and courage. Um, and uh, within a couple of years, I was asked to teach people who had um, chronic pain and injuries. And that was sort of a crash course in trying to figure out what actually would be useful here. I think I was invited because I had this training in psychology and mind-body psychology um, and had to sort of quickly get my bearings in the world of yoga therapy and doing trainings that were focused much more on um, individualized and slower breath-focused yoga and really beginning to understand the application to the experience of pain and injuries. And so those were sort of my two trajectories. And actually, they're still the two parts of the practice that I value the most. And I think what they, they both have in common is, uh, first of all, putting the breath and the quality of your attention at the center. Um, you know, whether it was so fascinating when I first started doing Ashtanga Vinyasa Yoga, and I was also practicing Zen meditation at the same time. And you know, if you know the core, the, the first practice you learn in Zen meditation is counting the breath in cycles of five. And it was such a, an aha that that's exactly what you do in Ashtanga Vinyasa. You count the breath in cycles of five as you go from pose to pose. And um, so there was something about that as being the primary, the, the, the thing that sort of held all my practices together was that breath focus and using practice as a meditation, as well as understanding poses, not primarily from a structural or functional point of view, like this pose will stretch this muscle, but really understanding that every pose has uh, a meaning to it that you can sense in, your, in the pressure on your tendons and the fascia stretching and in the gesture of your arms reaching overhead and the, the drishti where your gaze is going. You can actually sense yourself in a different way in many poses and that can be profoundly healing whether you're talking about anxiety and depression or living in a body that feels like it's betrayed you because you have chronic pain or a serious illness. Um, and this book, The Joy of Movement, basically talks about all of those things with an extra emphasis on the power of moving together in community, which is something that I discovered early on teaching and, and actually had a profound effect on me as somebody who has always struggled to feel like I belong, to find that, that place of moving and breathing together where, um, where you can create a community that's not, it's not dependent on our normal social roles, that it's a a community that comes from the fact that we're sort of all equal breathing and moving together and showing up. And there's a, a certain type of bond that builds over time. And so, um, so the joy movement is basically trying to figure out how do we integrate all these things we know about the psychology of movement and also really use group movement experiences like yoga classes to build community and enhance belonging that can really empower people to deal with everything else that's going on in their lives. I love that because I think like you, most yoga teachers have had some profound experience of accessing their best sense of self, like a, a, a potential within the context of a group yoga class. And then they start teaching and there's a big message. And I give this message also that you need to have a personal practice. You need to do your own practice in order to really do enough inquiry to be able to teach it, right? So that you're not always, if you, if you want to be more than a parrot of your teachers, you need to have, spend some time on your own. Yet a lot of yoga teachers struggle with that because there's something so special about the group. There's something really compelling there that they have a hard time recreating that at home. So it's an interesting dilemma. I mean, I, I occasionally heard that message from teachers and in communities but the truth is, if you look at how yoga 
is practiced, um, at least in the traditions that I've been a part of, it's a collective experience. It's not a do-it-yourself project. And that is true for every contemplative tradition I've ever studied. You know, it, it's in fact, it's exactly the opposite message. It's not don't sit and meditate at home. You need to come to a group and meditate with a community and uh, in relationship with a community that shares your values and gives you some support for your practice. And there's, a, an, there's like an obvious understanding that that is more powerful than trying to make your personal practice or spiritual practice a do-it-yourself project that you do at home by yourself, you know, led by yourself and by your ego. Um, so it's interesting. I know that some people get that message, but if there's anyone listening who feels that draw, like they have a different experience in a yoga class in a community, I mean, my goodness, you're teaching collective movement and you're teaching collective joy. So you should be training in the process of collective movement and collective joy. And it's not about whether or not you'll be parroting a teacher, but do you understand the process that emerges when people are moving and breathing together? Um, so I actually think if anyone is struggling with that and feels like it's a dilemma, I'm going to throw my vote towards, of course, you should be practicing the very process that you're teaching. And um, I do, you know, I did yoga on my own at home this morning. There's, it's not a, uh, there's nothing wrong with it, but of course it's a different experience and it, it plays a different role, I think, in our lives. That makes a lot of sense. I I think your message is really important and it's worth considering how can we recenter this experience of the group class that is what drew so many of us into yoga? Is there a way of, I don't know, like reinvigorating it in a so that it, it works for both the for everybody involved, right? And, you know, it's, it's an interesting challenge. There was a period in my life where my primary income was from teaching um, group yoga classes. It's possible, but it's very difficult. I actually think, you know, if I were to give advice to somebody who wants to be a yoga teacher as a career, to think not necessarily about, is it teaching 20 asana classes a week, but figuring out how to best serve your community and to look for roles that you can step into that serve your community that may have nothing to do with asana or even movement. Um, just sort of how I think about my career, everything that I do is uh, meant to be a value and of service to my community. And sometimes that's leading meditation and writing retreats. And sometimes it's teaching a psychology class and sometimes it's teaching movement experiences and sometimes it's writing books and articles. And, um, I also would encourage people to think about moving beyond the yoga studio environment. Um, I have made a commitment to teaching in um, communities that I want to bring a positive experience to or where I want to support community. So right now I teach movement classes at uh, a local community center that is very low cost, that offers great discounts to seniors. We have a very different kind of community. I teach at Stanford University still where I really want to bring um, these positive collective experiences to a community that needs it, where everyone is under high levels of stress and where I was the, the beneficiary of somebody else providing that experience for me. So um, I guess I don't spend a lot of time thinking about yoga as an industry or as a business because I'm not really in that world anymore. And um, I would encourage people to have a very open sense of what's possible for themselves. And if you think of teaching yoga as about building community and empowering individuals and uh, that can be done in a lot of different places and in, in a lot of different ways. I love that advice. 
And it's very similar to the work that I do with yoga teachers when I do thinking about yoga as an industry. Um, but I think about it through the lens of the independent yoga teacher. And always the first step is, who do you want to help? Because mm -hmm. you don't want to put yourself in a box of, these are my limited tools of how I help people. And that's how I figure out who to help. You want to start with looking at an actual person that you're trying to help and then ask yourself, what are the tools I have to help them? Yes. And as you grow as a yoga teacher, you'll find that you have tools that work really well with asana, but don't necessarily limit you to asana. I've seen so many people who started out teaching primarily asana and then teaching nutrition and cooking classes and teaching meditation and teaching communication and nonviolent communication. You develop a lot of skills when you're in a room leading people and having to develop in yourself um, strengths of integrity and holding group process and responding to what's actually unfolding in the present moment. I mean, you develop so many skills in that way. And um, as your career develops, you can really harness those skills for the, the, the broader um, pursuit of teaching and sharing. Thank you for saying that. I, my own experience has borne that out also. And even though I'm currently staying within the yoga space, what I do is I look, I'm working, I work with yoga teachers and I look at what they need. And that's so inspiring to me. I feel like I have an unlimited amount of creativity right now because I'm in dialogue with the people that I'm trying to help. Um, but I love that you pointed out the way that teaching yoga is going to build your skill sets in all different kinds of ways and that you can we as yoga teachers can be um, open-minded as far as where that's going to lead us in the long run. Absolutely. I, I would say the, the best teaching skill I ever developed that I use now in everything that I teach, including lectures and giving big speeches on stage and all, all that other aspects of my professional life, was when I first taught that first class for people with chronic back pain where I showed up and I realized I didn't understand their bodies. I didn't understand their inner experiences. And I did not have a plan I could apply to them. And I would say it took me two or three years of paying exquisite attention and asking them about their experiences and looking and listening and observing and co-creating with them and with their, their own bodies and their experiences of life, a practice that ended up becoming um, you know, really a, a powerful group movement experience that I taught for over a decade. Um, it, that learning that skill of listening and observing, paying attention, paying attention, and staying connected to your value of being of service, um, and learning as much as you can. But it's that that process of paying attention and responding has been the greatest um, the greatest skill that I have as a teacher. And uh, I learned that almost by being thrown in over my head, which I don't. I mean, you know. I don't necessarily recommend you take jobs you're not qualified for, but at that point it was me or somebody who was even less qualified. So um, yeah, I guess that was a happy mistake. Yeah, and that's a theme that is we we come up against on this podcast a lot because there's a balance between wanting all the information, which is understandable. like And a bit dangerous if you think you have all the information. <laughs> well, it's definitely dangerous if you think you have it all. But, <laughs> but mostly I work with people who don't think they have it all and they just yeah. want more. And they think that having more information is going to make them a better teacher. And so there's always a little bit of unlearning that you're good enough right now 
to walk into a room and really pay attention to the people in that room and, and, and listen. Because to that's where a lot of the information is. A lot of the information is arising in the present moment and having just enough information to sort of not start with things that are clearly a bad idea for whatever is, is in the room. You know, as long as you have enough information to not start with things that are super contraindicated and not going to be a great experience for people, there's a lot of information present in the room that you can listen to. Exactly. And so I just want for other yoga teachers to figure this out faster than I did <laughs> <laughs> and to walk into that room consciously knowing that our biggest responsibility is to watch and listen and our, it, over executing some plan that we have. It's like the plan is the container that allows us to relax into the paying attention. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a good way of describing life. <laughs> <laughs> Applies broadly. And at the same time, the science is awesome and fun and uh, exciting. So I'm thrilled that you're here to talk about that. Well, let's talk a little bit about what, like, what is happening in a group yoga class that teachers might not be aware of is happening. And we could start right at why it is that it feels so good to do yoga in a group experience. Um, some of the things that um, I discovered when I was trying to really dig into the neuroscience, sort of the embodied experience of that high that we get from, from doing yoga in a group setting, one of the first things I learned is that it's not just an endorphin rush. So, so often we think, oh, we get the endorphins flowing from, from any type of exercise, but that when we move in a, a sort of... Um, in a continuous way at a moderate intensity, the, the kind of intensity that I think most people are experiencing in yoga. I mean, sometimes it feels really hard, but if you dig into the physiology, it's not like you're at maximum heart rate capacity. So it can feel really intense, but from a you know, physiological level, it's probably like a moderate intensity. And when people engage in moderate intensity exercise for a sustained period of time, one of the first neurotransmitters that really increases is endocannabinoids, which is what cannabis mimics. And it has this fascinating effect of increasing optimism and hope. Um, it calms anxiety. It actually, so it's almost like a, a molecule of courage. Um, it, it, incre it increases the pleasure we get from connecting with other people. So when you're moving in a group class, and maybe in the beginning you're sort of cranky and you're like, okay, your yoga mat is too close to my yoga mat. Please don't make me do a partner exercise. <laughs> But 20, 30 minutes into it, and you're sensing yourself as a part of a, something bigger than you, and those endocannabinoids are flowing, um, and everything feels better with the world. And suddenly, like it feels better when your teacher maybe places a hand on your shoulder and says an encouraging word, or you're asked to, you know, do a movement uh, in sync with other people in the room, and maybe like there's, it's just you get more pleasure from that, um, and that's one of the primary hallmarks of what happens when we move. And um, we also get a particular endorphin rush that is specific to moving in synchrony with others. Um, I actually, I like the term collective joy for this, which is a term that I, I picked up from the anthropology literature, that you, you release more endorphins and more dopamine and, and possibly even oxytocin, which helps us bond with others and also makes us feel braver and more optimistic, specifically when you are moving in synchrony with other people. I think it's one of the reasons why I was drawn to flow yoga. I was introduced to Iyengar yoga and sort of a more alignment-based yoga. And so what I think of as sort of workshoppy yoga approaches where you're constantly refining the depth of your understanding and skill in poses. And that's just not where it was for me. 
um, it was in the synchronizing movement with the breath and with others in the room. And that you get that particular collective joy endorphin rush that makes you feel more optimistic and hopeful about life. And it, it gives you a sense of belonging and trust with the people that you moved with. And I think it's one of the reasons why, um, why moving together in group classes is so popular because you can't get that when you're on your own at home or even if you are you know, following along to a video and it sort of feels like you're in synchrony with the teacher leading it, but you can't smell people. I mean, you can even literally the emotions that are present in our sweat are contagious. And so if you're in a flow yoga class where everyone is feeling good, you are literally inhaling chemicals that we secrete through happy sweat that increases your own mood. And again, I, can't, I cannot overemphasize how important collective movement experiences are to the psychological benefits of, of movement and yoga. I love that, that term, happy sweat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which also, by the way, so if you are a, you know, super, so I don't, I have to say, I don't know a lot about what's popular in the quote unquote yoga world right now, because I'm just not tracking the way I was when I was in my twenties and thirties. Um, and as a newer teacher, but when I first started teaching, there was a huge trend towards being very aggressive, almost hostile, super critical as a teacher teachers were still being trained to use physical aggression as a form of correction in poses. And some people may be shocked if they weren't exposed to that aspect of the yoga world. And I think about how different that is from the type of presence I learned from teachers like Eric Schiffman and Sean Korn, who were some of these, the, the people who were pioneers in adapting Ashtanga Vinyasa in sort of a more, uh, I don't know, generous spirit of flow yoga. And the love that you would sense from their ability to hold the group, um, that that is such an important aspect of what we are delivering and um, such a useful contribution. Absolutely. So I'm curious, how, how do we take this information about the endorphin rush and the endocannabinoids? Can we use this to either structure our classes a little differently or to, can we be sensitive? Like, oh, I think the, the shift has happened, you know, by, by doing that watching and paying attention. And how do we, how can we respond differently to our students based on what we're seeing? Yeah. One thing I learned to do very early on in teaching is to craft and deliver flow sequences that people could master and to really emphasize the synchrony within the room. Um, I love using sounding as a way to enhance the effect of synchronized movement to produce collective joy. So for example, if you were doing a, a sequence, a flow in and out of various warrior poses, on the exhalation, depending on what's appropriate in your group, using a sound that's just an ah sound or a humming, closed mouth humming sound or an ohm sound or you know, in various places using more um, specific chants was part of my practice. Um, that sound can enhance both the synchrony of the group and also your direct experience that you are moving in synchrony with others. But um, to, to look at what's happening in the room and that your job is not just to get bodies to look like they're doing poses correctly, but to, to have a collective movement experience where nobody's left behind because they can't get their foot in the right place in time or it's so complicated that everyone is looking at you. They want you to keep you know, doing it or saying 9,000 instructions. Um, if you understand that a huge part of what's gonna produce the endorphins and the, the sense of hope and optimism and courage 
is that synchronized movement to prioritize it and look for ways to enhance it. Often um, I would put people in um, arrangements so that they can see one another moving as well. So to bring people's focus off of the mirror um, and to maybe do, uh, if the room allows, in a circle so that you can see the movement of the breath. Um, it's also one of the reasons why I am a fan of uh, Ujjayi breathing, which again, I know, I think has like, disappeared a little bit from the yoga world, I'm not sure. Um, but that idea that you can produce an audible sound from the breath, that is literal feedback that you are moving as one and breathing as one. Um, I mean, those are just some of the things that I think about. But And thinking about the endocannabinoid and the endorphin rush that comes from sustained movement too, also knowing that people will feel different as they go through their practice and that you can direct their attention to it. So in that, that first opening pose or movement or preparation, meditation, have people check in with where their energy is at and where their emotions are at and have them check in where you think is sort of like a peak transition moment. So maybe you've been doing sun salutations and standing poses and it's 30 minutes into class and you have a good sense that their bodies and their brains are producing those chemicals. Ask them, how do you feel now? Leave them in a pose that you think carries a, a gesture, an attitude that really reflects that. So maybe it's um, you know brave warrior leave them there and ask them how they feel. And you know, they'll be getting all those sensory signals from the actual posture itself and the hormones that are flowing. And then also, you know, after class, I also encourage people to harness knowing that if you are doing, you know, this, this movement practice, that people will be in a different state after class than they were ahead of time. You know, see if you can schedule classes so that there's room and time for connection. Can you, can you enhance, so they're going to leave the class experience primed to connect with others, biologically, neurochemically, they're primed to connect with others. Can you exploit that and give them opportunities to connect with you or with one another? And also know that they are primed neurochemically to feel optimistic and hopeful about their goals. So at the end of class, you know, when you're entering Shavasana or you're closing class, maybe ask them to think about uh, a goal that is important to them or challenge that they're facing. And to maybe you do a short reflection on self-trust and sensing yourself as capable of rising to the challenge or reaching this goal. And you, one of the benefits of doing yoga or any form of movement is you will feel more adequate to the challenges in your life. And when you know that people are having that experience, don't waste it, right? Make it matter. Let them, let them join the physiology they're experiencing with something meaningful in their life, whether it's connecting with others or thinking about um, how they want to bring that energy and that mindset to other parts of their life that are important to them. Inviting people to connect after class. That's something that I noticed is a lot more popular in Europe, that that's a really common thing that everybody has, has tea with the teacher after class. Yeah. And I think it would be a great idea for those of us in the States to emulate that. And especially yoga studio owners if you're, especially Stop if you're, overscheduling your classes so that people get kicked out, it breaks my heart. Yeah. Like if you're really, you know, if you want a sustainable business model, you need people to feel like you're a community. Yes. And so you have to give them opportunities to connect and it can't be something, you know, like if you're like, oh, we're going to have a potluck now. Well, 20 years ago, that would have worked. People would have been like, sweet, a potluck. I get, you know, but there's so much going, much more going on now. Like that actually still might work in a rural area where there isn't so much going on. But for those of us in kind of busier areas, 
nobody wants one more thing to put on their schedule or on their calendar. It's like, it's an, it's hard enough for them to get to a yoga class. That's at the same time, at the same place, every single week, <laughs> if we can get them to connect where they already are, I think that's what's going to plant the seeds for them feeling like it's a community and then feeling invested in that studio and committed. Yeah. And there are other ways you can build social connection into a movement experience. You know, at the end of a class, when people are about to leave, you can ask them, by the way, like, what's something that you're proud of? Something you did this week that you're, you're going to give yourself a pat on the back. Now turn and share that with someone next to you. And again, sometimes things that seem intimidating when you're not hopped up on endocannabinoids and endorphins, right? They actually work beautifully when they are executed at the end of a, a, a wonderful collective movement experience. And um, I have always found that my most successful um, community events happen on holidays. You know, I've taught in major urban areas. Um, as well as now I live in Palo Alto, which is, you know, the heart of Silicon Valley, where please, it's, you want people who are rushed and busy. Um, and to offer a collective joy experience on something like Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, um, any holiday, it, the fact that you are choosing to show up on that holiday and that there's a place where you're welcome and where you belong and people are happy to see you, that's been really important to me over the years. And, and those classes have always been packed and um, it's one of the ways of both building community and serving community. If you think about the experiences that people really need, one of the reasons I started teaching holiday classes is I actually remember a very specific student. Her son had recently died and she was having a very difficult time and the holidays were coming up and she was going to be around her family and she needed a place to go where she didn't have to like, hold her family together but she could feel held. And that was the first year I actually decided to teach a class on Thanksgiving. And I always think about that sort of thing. You know, it's these movement experiences can be so much more powerful than we recognize. But if you give yourself permission to recognize what they can do for people, sometimes it can make you a little bit more, you know, bold and brave about what you want to offer. Maybe it's not the potluck, but really thinking, what's the, what's the thing that this community needs? when or who might need a place to show up and breathe and feel like they belong without having to, you know, hold the world together. Mm, yeah. And I think that is one of the things that people love about yoga or a lot of yoga classes is it's a place that they can go and turn off the rest of their life and just be in their bodies and not need to, you know, like it's really me time. A lot of people use their yoga class as self-care because in the rest of their lives, there's so many other people to be thinking about, other details to be paying attention to, but you come into yoga and you're just thinking, you know, arm here, leg here, and there's just this profound peace yeah. that comes. And it's me time and it's we time, but mm -hmm. the we does not require you to wear your social masks and, mm -hmm. and perform your social functions. There's a, a kind of, it's, it's almost, you know, it's a self-transcendence. I mean, Lots of movement forms can do this. You, you know, in writing the book, I found people were reporting the exact same things from CrossFit and rowing classes. I mean, this is not exclusive to yoga, but let's face it, there's something built into the technology of yoga that helps us experience self-transcendence. And, um, and so I, I like that idea of me time, but I also like that idea of we time, um, that 
because it's it's a this part of self care is often feeling less deeply like entrenched in the, your own mind, <laughs> the sort of relentless self focus that comes from anxiety or from self criticism or from pursuing goals relentlessly. It's so there's a self care that comes from just actually stepping back from that a little bit and being less self focused. Um, that I think that yoga can provide. Yeah. And then knowing what you just taught us about the progression and how we're different at the end of class and at the beginning of class, that can probably help yoga teachers. Maybe they have some great ideas that they have tried introducing at the beginning of class and it didn't really land. Yes. Like, <laughs> is there a way that you could just kind of plant a quick seed and then develop it when your students are ready. Yeah. Think about, right, your students are ripening over the class. They're becoming more receptive for, um, for your wisdom, your insights, for self-reflection, and for social connection. And um, if you think about deepening that, so maybe you plant that, the idea, maybe you introduce a theme, but you don't lead people on some heartfelt, you know, guided compassion meditation first thing but you wait until you've been doing a series of, of backbends and strong poses and people feel strong and open. And then you hit them with the compassion meditation or sort of whatever the, the practice is um, for sure. And I, you know, I also, I've always thought of sequencing yoga in that way too. I mean, I just gave a, a off the top of my head, that example of thinking about priming people towards open-hearted reflections by having them embody strength and stability first. Um, and I think that, that's sort of a, a general approach I always encourage people to do, to think if you're introducing powerful psychological ideas, how do you create an embodied experience that is a strong container for it? And so often I found that teachers kind of do the opposite. They're like, how can I um, make people, it's almost like the most vulnerable state I can put them in. So they have a powerful emotional experience. And then it's like you do open heart surgery on people and you forget to stitch them up and they walk back into the world feeling raw and vulnerable. And um, there's a lot to learn from the psychology of movement and how different postures affect our brain and our mood. One of the examples that I like to give is that when you activate deep muscles of your core, um, the types of muscles that you would need to engage in a plank or in a standing balance pose, in, in any, any yoga pose where you could think, right, you're, you're using your core not for movement, but to stabilize your body. Um, that that's the receptors in your core muscles literally talk to the areas of your brain that regulate stress and anxiety. And the primary consequence of contracting and stabilizing those muscles is it tells your fear centers to calm down, that you are literally telling your brain, I've got this. And, um, and I think like that's one of, the reasons, one of the reasons why I like to start a lot of practices that are going towards open-hearted places with core stability practices. But I also start my day doing core work because that's what I need for my psychology. I need to feel grounded and centered and I need to tell my brain I've got this. Um, but you can learn a lot from the psychology of movement that would you know, help you come up with your own kind of prescription or movement pattern to support the psychology that you're looking to experience or to create in others. I love that because I usually have heard of grounding as being more about standing poses and the legs, but similar to you, I also experience a lot of psychological 
benefit from engaging my core. And it doesn't have to be anything really fancy. It doesn't even have to be anything as vigorous as a plank. This morning in my practice, I was doing, you know, these bridge poses with spinal articulation and there's so much going on there. And it's quite, it's quite accessible. Like it's not easy because of the you know, controlling your spine vertebra by vertebra, that's like, <laughs> that's a, that's an, that's a, it's a refined practice, but everybody can access working on it and access benefits from working on it, I think. Yes. In fact, when I was teaching that, um, the class for people with chronic pain and illnesses and injuries at, through the Stanford um, School of Medicine for all those years, core movement was at least half of what we were doing in a safe way. But because so much of what your nervous system needs when you experience pain is that 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 sense that I can handle life and I can handle engaging with life. And core movements is actually one of the best ways to, to teach your nervous system that and to teach your brain that at both the psychological level and at the literal physical level so that you can be less fearful of movement, which is such a big part of chronic pain. And people start you know, disengaging from life to try to prevent new experiences of pain or worsening pain. And that's, you know, that's a metaphor for what so many of us do when we experience difficult psychological experiences like anxiety or depression or trauma. We start looking for ways to avoid feeling those things and we may disengage from life a little bit. And so I feel like another sort of psychological benefit of yoga is teaching us how to engage with life in ways that feel really empowered. I love that the topic of the core came up because I think there's a lot of misinformation about it. In one way, core strengthening gets a bad rap because of like people who, you know, have done too many sit-up focused core (laughs) workouts that like made their bodies hurt. And then not that there's anything wrong inherently with sit-ups, but there are certain uh, contexts where there, I think, have been exercise instructors who in all... Uh, sincerity, we're trying to access the core, but did so in a way that maybe wasn't super skillful. And then from the other end, like this idea that just strengthen your core and your back will be healed. So I'd, I'd love for you to go even deeper into what you mean when you talk about engaging the core in a skillful way. Well, I start with breathing. You know, the intentional um contraction of core muscles to support a deep and full exhalation. So if I were teaching a core workshop, actually the initially start by relaxing tension you don't need. So I would often start by um, what I call breathing poses that involve props where you lie down in different positions or sit in different positions to release unnecessary tension in the core. And by the core, I'm talking about the whole structure from your shoulder girdle through your abdominals, your back, through your hips, and that's all connected all the way down to you know the ankle chain. So the core is like everything, but you feel it centered often around the you know the center of your body. So releasing unnecessary tension through breath, and then bringing in intentional tension and strength through exhalation practices. And I often will teach it first as movement of only the breath, so you're in a neutral position, and then adding sounding, and then adding um, flexion and extension of the spine in various poses that can range from, you know, cat cow to small cobras, any, any position where you can engage in that way. And then twists of the spine and then starting to use core muscles, not for 
the, the movement of the spine, but the stabilization of the spine and the shoulder girdle and the hips um, through movements, whether it's something like plank or a bakasana, you know, sort of a more challenging level um, or various standing poses. And that it's not so much, um, it's that sense of continuing to integrate breath with an intention for your posture or your movement and always staying connected to the feeling that we're trying to train through the core, that is continuing to feel grounded, to feel centered, to feel not rushed. Um, and there are you know, endless movement possibilities for that, but I think if you make the breath primary and you've taught people through the breath and simple movements how to activate muscles of the deep core and, and the whole, all of those different stabilizing systems of the body that they have a psychological experience that again where they feel a sense of agency and stability and people aren't going to be overdoing it or hurting themselves or i don't know whatever the the concern is what you just described is a very skillful way to kind of work people into this awareness and really it's a relationship with your core right mm. one of the i think other themes of your book is how to help people begin and commit to the journey of this joyful movement, this joyful embodiment. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. All the way from understanding that if you have not been active with your body, that it takes, for example, about six weeks for regular movement, regular exercise to change the reward system of your brain so that you start to crave it and you enjoy it more and you remember it as a more positive experience, and you actually like get hooked on it, that it, it seems to, on average, take about six weeks of doing movement at least a few times a week to get there. So you know, one of the things that I think about is, if you're somebody who wants to get hooked, who's not yet, how do you support yourself in that process? If you're trying to hook people who have a very different relationship with their bodies and don't enjoy movement, how, how can you pull them through that process, that commitment, knowing that, I mean, it's so funny because probably many people listening to this, you don't even remember what that was like. But at some point, it was true for you too, <laughs> that the experience was not as wonderful as it is now. I mean, it's just like, it's so, you can even think about individual poses. I used to always like to joke and ask people, what's your least favorite pose? Or like, I think your favorite pose in a, you know, a few years, just give it time, like pigeon pose. Because initially that sensation of stretch, the brain only knows how to interpret it as pain. And that is nervous system that has not practiced yoga only knows stretch as pain because those receptors are ambiguous about what they're, what's happening in the body. And usually the brain interprets it as pain. In the right context over time, the brain starts to change so that it interprets those same physical sensations of stretch as pleasure because those sensory receptors provide ambiguous information to the brain. So you experience the same stretch as literally a completely different experience after you've been working with it for a period of time and in a context where you are encouraged and you experience social support and maybe there's beautiful music playing and you're interpreting it as an act of self-care and literally it feels different. So I'm also, I'm often encouraging new instructors to remember things feel different when you've been doing it for a while, to have empathy for what it feels like when you're new and also to know that the transition, as the brain and the nervous system learn a new way of interpreting movement experiences, you are determining a lot of that by the joy that you bring to the experience, whether it's the music that you play 
or the way that you know people's names and you use their names and ask them, how was that trip that you were taking to see your cousin? Like, how did it go? And the smells in the environment and all those things that you can do to bring in more pleasure and meaning help advance how fast the learn brains, how fast the brain learns from experience to enjoy movement. Um, so that's one part of it. But the other thing too is that so much of movement, the brain experiences movement as a metaphor and we make meaning from it. And that's one of the other things that teachers can get, get really good at is um, like literally like I'll, I'll be leading people in a series of squats in, uh, in a dance class that I teach. You know, if we're doing a squat song and in the moment pause and be like, by the way, this is what it feels like to stand in your own strength and then just shut up for a little bit that you, the, the brain wants to make meaning out of what you're doing. And you can invite people to do that by drawing their attention to what it means to be doing this gesture with your arms raised overhead, or what it means to lean back in a backbend, that sense of trust and courage. What does it mean to surrender in a forward bend? Um, and again, that really helps people in their journey to finding a practice that's right for them and committing to the practice is when it's not about what the body looks like or about, it's not even about mastery. Like you have to get further in this pose as if there's some inherent good to being one inch further toward your toes, um, but that there's an inherent meaning in the action that you're doing. And that surprises a lot of people who aren't used to thinking in that way. It can be a, a major revel, uh, revelation for people to, to suddenly sense their own strength or to sense their own balance or their own freedom or whatever that quality is. So I think what I'm hearing is that there's a potential for yoga teachers to invite students to create meaning out of the journey rather than the destination, because a lot of yoga teachers, one of the challenges that they have is that achieving a yoga posture is something that a yoga student can visualize and can work towards. So it's something that's concrete and they can be like, I have a goal of doing the splits. And the yoga teacher will be like, it's not about the destination, it's about the journey, but then- And also, <laughs> actually, so I'm actually glad you said that because I wouldn't want to um, imply that actually there's anything wrong with having these milestone moments or poses. In every movement form, mastery is a, an important joy. And uh, you know, I remember, I remember, this one woman, she was in her 40s, she was recovering from breast cancer. And the first time she was able to do headstand at the wall, after having gone through surgery for breast cancer and so much limited movement and pain and all these, these issues, she came out of headstand, she started laughing, she, like laughing so hard. And she was like, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I did that. And that milestone, it wasn't like, so she could take a picture of herself and headstand and post it on Facebook. It was because it meant that things were possible that she hadn't really believed were possible. And after the health crisis she'd been through, that was a really important thing to believe, that there was a future ahead of her where, she, where things were unknowable in a positive way, not just unknowable in a scary way. And so I feel like the idea that you could have a goal to be able to do a pose, that can be incredibly healthy and a, a fruitful path, but it's the teacher's job to continue to redirect the, the student's attention on what it is you're training and developing. Like, what would you need to do to be able to hold a headstand? Mental focus, courage, 
inner stability and inner strength, right? That that's what you're training along the way. And so the achievement of that pose isn't like nailed it, check it off the list. What's the next hard thing I have to master? It's this me having this moment in a headstand is memorable and meaningful because I've been developing the strength and the courage I needed to do this pose. So yeah, I, I love milestone poses as long as they're chosen, you know, ask people why, if like, I really want to be able to do the splits, why? What do you, like the splits are an amazing posture, especially if you can throw your arms in the air and take your gaze up. But like, you know, make sure there's a reason, not because somebody looks around the room and it's like everyone else is in the splits. I guess there's something wrong with me until I can achieve it too. Well, I think that that is, it, it's just the easiest thing for them to visualize, right? They, they have a sense, I want to do yoga. I like, the, I like how I feel when I do yoga. I like the look of the people I see around me doing yoga. I like their energy, whatever. I like their personality. So I'm attracted to this. And then it's just the easiest way for them to, to visualize themselves progressing, right? Whereas yeah. as the teachers, like you said, it's our job to give them other mile markers to pay attention to because what we know if we've been doing this for a while is that first of all you achieve one goal and then yeah there is always another one to achieve so it's can't be about achieving a specific goal because you never get there and are like all right I can retire now you know like and even say you achieve the splits well I don't know about you 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 were a dancer so you may have a little bit of a different experience but I would have to I have to keep training the splits if I want to, like, if I want to keep doing the splits, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not like, yeah. And at some point it really doesn't hold meaning anymore. I mean, that's one of the things live long enough. You start abandoning poses too. And you say goodbye with love and say that legs never going behind my head again. Um, but you know, one of the reasons that, so one of the reasons I wrote this book and that I hope yoga teachers will take from it is that you can harness these natural human instincts people bring to your classroom, like the desire for mastery and progress. I have a whole chapter about how to harness that in a really healthy way so that people experience progress and possibility and hope and get to celebrate their achievements in a community, but to do it in a way that really maximizes the joy and the, the meaning of it. Um, and I think that's true with so many of the things like you know, human nature is complicated. We bring in all sorts of desires and impulses and um, movement, in my experience, really brings out the best in us. So by, by uh, what we're often doing in any movement experience, including yoga, is we're given access to these parts of ourselves, like the ability to have hope and pursue goals or the ability to connect with others and transcend the self or the ability to feel uplifted by music and, uh, and, and the power of celebration, all of those things can really be enhanced and amplified by movement. And uh, my hope is that yoga teachers will be inspired to, um, to think more broadly about how they can bring all those different joys into the classroom. I think that they will. Kelly, I think that that was so much really in interesting information. And I would love to know if you have any other insights from the science of yoga that we haven't covered yet that you'd really like for yoga teachers to know. Yes. So one of my favorite findings has to do with how mindful movement can disrupt the typical default state of the brain. So and it's, I think one of the things that actually draws people to yoga and also often draws people to activities like running and hiking and swimming, where people also experience this type of shift. Um, so often 
the human mind by default, when you're not really focused on something, you're not engaged in, in an important conversation, or you're not immersed in, say, a creative experience, the mind defaults to an inner chatter that is usually defined by worrying, judging others, thinking about what other people think about you, maybe pursuing your goals, but the default mode often has a, a negative bias. And this seems to be true for human nature. If it's true for you, it's not because you have a broken brain. It seems to be the default. It's part of how we evolved as, as humans who need to think about the future and need to think about our place in the world in order to survive. But for people who suffer from depression and anxiety or trauma, often the default mode is relentless. It's relentlessly verbal and it feels like quicksand. You can't get out of it. And uh, what we know is that yoga is one of the most powerful ways to disrupt the default so that you have, you literally are shifting the brain into a state that's characterized more by what you're feeling in your body, what's happening around you, your direct sensory experience, and a sense of self that's not characterized so much by that inner stream of chatter that, that can so often be negative. And uh, meditators spend decades trying to learn how to do this. And there are certain forms of movement where people seem to get access to it very quickly. Um, flow yoga is one of them. Swimming is one of them. And, um, and any sort of exercise outdoors is another. And so I think like knowing that that it's an amazing gift. Um, some of the most cutting edge therapies right now for depression and other psychological disorders is literally trying to like insert electrodes into the brain to stimulate the brain in ways that can change the default or you know, taking drugs that are trying to reorganize the default state. And it's complicated and it's expensive and none of the stuff is FDA approved yet. And yet by doing yoga or by taking a walk outdoors, you can literally disrupt the default state in a way that looks a lot like if you were to study what happens in the brain of a meditation master. Wow. Well, thank you for, for leaving us with that bit of remembering how important the work that we're doing is because I know that for a lot of people, their yoga is their lifeline. And it's important for yoga teachers to remember that <laughs> what you do is important and yeah. it really does help people. Thank you for what you're doing to support the community. I learned so much from that conversation and I bet you did too. It makes me feel really excited to teach live again. I've been so focused on my one-on-one -on -one clients and on my online course that I just released recently that I have not done a lot of live teaching lately. In fact, the next live workshop that I have scheduled is not until March. But this conversation with Kelly makes me really pumped about it. So if you happen to be in the Western North Carolina region, I'm teaching at Brevard Yoga, a master class that is connected to their teacher training. So basically anybody can take the master class and then after the master class is over, I'm gonna be presenting a module to their teacher training. So that is on March 7th, I believe at 9 a.m. So if you happen to be in the area and you wanna come and enjoy some movement with me, I would love to see you. Just go to the Brevard Yoga website or call them up. I'm not exactly sure how to register, but I'm sure if you call them, they can help you out with that. So because I've been launching this online course that I mentioned just a moment ago, it's called Workshops That Wow. Registration is now closed, but if you are interested, if you're a yoga teacher and you're interested in learning my system 
for planning, presenting, and promoting yoga workshops. You can go to teachingyoga.net slash wow to get on the wait list for the next time I open it. Because I've been focused on promoting that, I haven't been asking you guys to leave me reviews. So my reviews have actually slowed down a whole bunch, which I guess it kind of makes sense that you get what you ask for. So if you feel generous and if you feel like this podcast has been beneficial for you, I would really, really appreciate a review. You can review on iTunes if you have an iTunes account. If not, you can go on Facebook and search for the Yoga Teacher Resource Facebook page and write a review there, or you can even just send me an email. I love getting emails from listeners. Hello, yoga teacher at gmail.com would be the email address to use. I absolutely love hearing from listeners, whatever way you choose to communicate with me. The iTunes is definitely the one that moves the needle for me a bit more, but any way that you want to reach out, I'm here. On that note, I have been thinking about doing some live Q&A sessions inside the Yoga Teacher Resource Facebook group. And that came from my experience of doing lives as I was promoting workshops that wow. And it was actually really fun to interact with people live on video and way less scary than I kind of had built it up to be in my head. So if you'd be excited to hang out with me live on Facebook sometimes, send me an email, helloyogateacher at gmail.com. Let me know if you think that's a good idea and let me know what days and times you think you'd be able to be there live. All right, that's what I've got for today. Thank you so very much for listening all the way through. Thank you to everyone who showed up live and supported me on those Facebook Lives that I did as I was promoting workshops that wow. And a very special thank you and welcome to all of my workshops that wow members. I have been enjoying our time together so much and I'm just honored by you putting your trust in me by signing up. And to all my listeners, thank you so much for caring enough to teach yoga and for caring enough to listen to a podcast to improve your teaching. I know that teaching yoga is not always the easiest path, and it really puts in front of us some tough questions and some tough choices. And so I just have so much respect for anyone who chooses to take on this project. And as much as you serve your students, I hope that you are able to make time for self-care and for your own personal practice, however that looks. Please join me again next week for an episode about how to sequence when you have a shorter demo class. See you then.